Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Living Wisely. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. On January 16th, 2003, the 113th Space Shuttle mission launched from Kennedy Space Center near Merritt Island, Florida. The mission seemed routine until Columbia disintegrated during re-entry 16 days later. During the lengthy investigation that followed, the Columbia Accident Investigation Board determined that about 82 seconds after launch on January 16th, a suitcase-sized piece of foam broke off from the external fuel tank and punctured a hole in the leading edge of the left wing. The debris created a 6 to 10 inch diameter breach in Columbia's heat shield allowing hot gases to enter the wing when the shuttle later re-entered the atmosphere on February 1st. The combination of full entry heating And the dynamic pressures created eventually led to the vehicle breaking into 84,000 pieces that were collected and investigated and studied. However, this wasn't the cause of the disaster. The cause of the Columbia disaster on February 1st, 2003, was poor leadership. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board released a 248-page document six months later in August of 2003, and they revealed that engineers tried to warn managers that Columbia might have been severely damaged during liftoff And they even knew the proper steps that could be taken to remedy the problem. The report also declared that a high-risk rescue mission using the sister ship Space Shuttle Atlantis could have been mounted because it was essentially ready for launch and was already on the schedule to uh, have a mission just about two months later. But tragically, management was unwilling to listen to the engineers' warnings. And management failed to recognize the problem and act quickly. Therefore, the report concluded, quote, what doomed the Columbia and its crew was not a lack of technology or ability, but a lack of leadership and open-mindedness within NASA management. And as a result, Seven astronauts' lives were lost, and countless more lost their jobs, employees of NASA, as the space shuttle program was suspended for at least two years. Every church, company, family, organization, team, or government needs leadership to succeed. And no church, company, family, organization, team, or government has survived without leadership. 
Without leadership in any context, there is a lack of direction, there's chaos, and disharmony. And King Solomon knew this when he wrote the book of Proverbs, so he recorded some timeless wisdom on this topic that we're going to look at today. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Proverbs chapter 8. And if you forgot your Bible, just raise your hands and one of our ushers can bring one to you. I want to also encourage you to take out the sermon note insert that's in the worship folder you received when you came in. And there's an outline so that you can follow along with me. Our theme verse in this study in the book of Proverbs that we're doing this summer is Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Let's say it out loud together. You can follow along on the keynote screen behind me or use your sermon note handout. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We've been learning that wisdom is the skillful application of God's word to every area of life for his glory and our good. And throughout this series, one of the wisest men to ever have walked on the earth has been telling us one simple truth in several different ways. And that is that wisdom reaps blessings, but foolishness reaps cursing. And one of the many areas that we all need wisdom is on how to lead and how to be under leadership. And so our big idea for today is this. Godly leaders pursue wisdom because it's impossible to lead without it. Godly leaders pursue wisdom because it's impossible to lead without it. In his classic book called Spiritual Leadership, J. Oswald Sanders offers a definition on leadership that I have found to be simple and sufficient. Uh, He writes, leadership is influence. It's the ability of one person to influence others to follow his or her lead. Therefore, not everyone can be a leader because then we would have no followers. You've probably heard the saying, you know, too many uh, chefs in the kitchen or too many chiefs. Uh, However, there are many people that are leaders or have the influence of a leader that don't realize it. Uh, For example, parents in the home are leaders. You're being watched by your children. Uh, They follow you. You've been given influence and you've been given authority to lead them. Teachers in the classroom, business owners in the community, small group leaders, team captains here in our church, employees that are over maybe a team or a department at the company in which you work. All of these examples exercise authority and influence in order to get things done. Now, godly leaders pursue wisdom because it's impossible to lead without it. If you would, look at Proverbs chapter 8, verses 14 to 17 with me as we look at the first truth that Solomon's going to tell us about leadership. Uh, Starting with verse 14, he says, uh, he writes, I have counsel and sound wisdom, I have insight and I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Okay, uh, here's point number one in your outline. Wise leaders are lifelong er learners. 
I almost said earners. <laughs> they, are, they are lifelong learners with an L. Uh, as I've mentioned before, the first nine chapters of Proverbs are basically Solomon discipling his sons. And so what we have here in chapter 8 is Solomon, he kind of uses a literary tool by putting wisdom in the first person and personifying it. And so it's actually supposed to be wisdom that's speaking here, like a female, not Solomon. You see that up in verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion, and so on and so forth. So, so what basically what Solomon is doing is he's having wisdom personified like a female speak from the first person, listing the benefits to try and motivate his sons to pursue wisdom. And so there's this, basically this passage right here is a list of reasons why we should pursue wisdom. And so one of the many motivations listed in this passage is the fact that even world leaders such as kings and rulers and princes and nobles know that they cannot lead without wisdom. And so the argument being made here in verses 14 to 17 is, if they know they need wisdom, then shouldn't you and I know as well? One core distinctive that comes out in study after study about leaders, and I have, over the years I've read many case studies um, in business journals and Christian books and so on and so forth about leaders. And uh, one of the core distinctives that sets leaders apart from other people is that they have an insatiable drive to learn and grow and achieve. Our nation's 26th president, for example, was a hard-charging leader. Throughout his days in office, Teddy Roosevelt was either hated or admired by the public. One particular day, an ardent admirer once exclaimed to him, Mr. Roosevelt, you are a great man! To which he replied in his characteristic candor, No, I am simply a plain, ordinary man that is highly motivated. <laughs> One of the many ways leaders satisfy their insatiable desire to learn and to grow and achieve is by reading. And here's a few reasons why. Uh, first of all, the challenges of leadership almost always demand more wisdom than the leader usually has at the time. In other words, what got the leader to where they are usually won't get them to where they need to be. Another reason that leaders are motivated to read is that they know it's impossible to grow spiritually or intellectually without reading. Although it would be convenient to grow by osmosis, many of us probably tried that when we were in high school or something, if we could just put the calculus book under our pillow and go to bed at night and absorb all of its knowledge and maybe we could pass our final exam. But unfortunately, that's not how the Lord made us. It doesn't work that way. And so leaders read because they, they see uh, reading as a type of informal, indirect mentoring. Reading allows an individual to glean wisdom, insight, experience from others that are more mature, more gifted, and more experienced than they are. 
Here's another reason why leaders read. Leaders know that the people they lead will only grow as much as they do. Or followers basically generally grow up to or just beneath the level of their leader. Thus, if the leader stops growing, then usually the followers do too. This is probably why someone told me early in my ministry, leaders are readers. You can't be an effective leader if you're not willing to read and to grow and to study and sharpen yourself. Yet if I was to if you were to ask me today or a handful of other leaders, what is one thing you wish you had more time to do? I would answer it, and I know many other leaders would say, I wish I had more time to read. It takes a great deal of discipline to make time to read, and it just never seems to be enough. So if the Lord has placed you in a position of influence or you desire to be an influencer, here's an application I'd like you to consider, and it's this. Grow in wisdom by reading widely. Grow in wisdom by reading widely. Reading stimulates the mind and feeds the soul and inspires the heart. Uh, The first book that spiritual leaders normally master is God's Word. Uh, they, They study it and meditate on it and devour it until it consumes them. But after that, they usually branch out to some of the other classics uh, in Christendom, in the Christian life. For example, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, or uh, Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, or Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, or um, Holiness by J.C. Ryle. These are just a few classics about the Christian life. And so they branch off from God's Word and do additional reading so that they can gain more wisdom on how to walk with the Lord and help others walk with the Lord. So I could go on, but let me just say, if you're wanting to grow in your walk with the Lord or in your leadership capacity, I would love to recommend some books to you. I'll be available after the service, and I can give you a a list or make some recommendations. I can show you my my wish list on Amazon.com that I have. I've got a long list of books that I'm waiting to buy and read. So godly leaders pursue wisdom because it's impossible to lead without it. If you would now turn to Proverbs 16, uh, Solomon talks about leadership in another capacity in Proverbs chapter 16, verses 10 through 13. He writes, An oracle is on the lips of a king, and his mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's, all the weights... In the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. And righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. Here's the second uh, point on your outline. Number two is this. Wise leaders maintain the highest ethical standards. Wise leaders maintain the highest ethical standards. The terms king or ruler are used many times in the book of Proverbs, several times, to refer to someone in leadership or in a position of authority. Now, these verses provide somewhat of a manual for what leaders ought to be, not what they are. So, so 
This is a standard that he's setting, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of what leaders should be. After serving... uh, I'm sorry, hold on a second, I forgot to read something else here. They must live their lives with integrity because integrity builds trust and trust makes leadership possible. And without trust, it is impossible to lead effectively. And so, thus... Solomon is talking about the character of leaders, kings, rulers, and that allows them to build and to earn trust so they can be followed. Now, how do they do this? Well, here's a letter A. They make impartial decisions. They, they, they build trust and they, they live and achieve, or excuse me, they pursue the highest ethical standards by making impartial decisions. Notice in verse 10 it says, his mouth does not sin in judgment. Uh, some translations say uh, the king, a good king doesn't sin in his decision making. Uh, one of the many qualities effective leaders possess is decisiveness. And this is because leadership almost always involves decision making. There are decisions that have to be made, and a lot of times somebody becomes the leader because nobody else wants to make the decisions and take responsibility for them. And so, um, because of this, one temptation, though, that leaders face in their decision-making is showing favoritism. After serving with and under many leaders for many years in different churches, I have learned that favoritism is often fueled by the fear of man, while impartiality is founded in the fear of the Lord. So time and time again, I have seen leaders make uh, partial decisions or show favoritism because they feared somebody leaving the church, feared somebody would stop giving or stop serving, or that there might be a blowout because that person is a member of a large family in the church, and oh my gosh, if we deal with that guy, he's going to leave and he's going to take all his family. That'll be like 30 people that leave. And oh, by the way, he's a small group leader, and so his small group will leave as well. And thus... Sadly, sometimes what leaders do is they show favoritism and adjust the standards and hold that guy to a different standard. It's lower because they fear the repercussions and don't want to trust the Lord with doing what's right. A few things I have seen godly leaders do to guard against favoritism that come to mind are this. Uh, First of all, they decide in advance that they will do their best to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So it starts with, who am I trying to please? Do I want to please man, or do I want to please the Lord? Paul urged the Ephesians to do this in Ephesians 5.10. That's a great Bible verse to memorize, by the way, and pray. Ephesians 5.10. You just might want to jot that down. Paul says, do your best to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. But he also, though, told the Galatians in Galatians 1.10 that it often means not pleasing people. You, you often can't please both the Lord and people. And so there's a choice that has to be made. Next, another thing I've seen godly leaders do to guard against favoritism is they gather as many facts as they can before making a decision. Uh, This includes not siding with the first 
or the last version of the story. Uh, Proverbs 18, 17, that's another great verse. I'd encourage you to just jot down the address and look it up later. But Proverbs 18, 17, Solomon says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Children do this all the time. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had one child come to me with only part of the story. I'm going to use a hypothetical example here so I don't incriminate any children in my home. But uh, say, for example, my son comes to me and says, Dad, your daughter needs a consequence. And that's how he would say it. It's your daughter. Like, it's not my sister. Dad, it's your daughter whom inherited your sin nature, Dad. She needs a consequence, Dad, because she hit me. Oh, wow. I mean, we don't allow hitting in our home. That's not good. And then just a few seconds later, little sister comes down the stairs crying, Dad, I almost died upstairs because brother, he was sitting on me and I couldn't breathe. So I was hitting him to tell him to get off and he wouldn't get off. Oh... You didn't tell me that part of the story. I've had adults do similar things. <laughs> Early in my ministry, I, I remember one particular wife that made a marriage counseling appointment with me and came in to see me, and she was crying and upset, and just her husband was the worst man to ever walk on the earth. And, and, you know, I was feeling horrible for her, all the things she was telling me about her husband. And it's, of course, as I, I was trained as a counselor to do, it was like, well, we need to get him in here and work on rebuilding your marriage. And so, so then I set up a meeting with the husband alone first. And, oh, boy, I got to hear the other side of the story. Fascinating how sinners do that. They... They tell the part that makes them look good and the other person look bad uh, until they're cross-examined and somewhere in the middle is the truth. Now, we have to manage our expectations when it comes to impartiality because sometimes a leader's decision will seem biased when it's not. It seems like it's biased from where we're sitting, but we don't really have all the information. And oftentimes, the leader does and can't share all the information. Something else that's important to remember is that even Jesus wasn't fair. For example, do you remember at the end of the Gospel of John, at John 21, when uh, Peter and Jesus are walking along the road and... And, and Peter starts to question Jesus about why he's being treated differently than John. And do you remember, you remember Jesus' answer? You follow me. Yeah, but that's no fair. You, you just said this about him and you said this about me. You follow me. In essence, Jesus is saying, I'll take care of him, I'll take care of you. Your job is to follow me. So, uh, leaders do their best to make impartial decisions by not being influenced by favoritism. Here's the second thing they do. Letter B, 
in order to maintain high ethical standards, and that is that they hate sin. They hate sin. In the first part of verse 12, there's a statement about godly leaders. It says, it says that sin is an abomination to them. They hate, they detest sin. They take their own sins seriously, but they also leverage the authority that God has given them to help others take their sins seriously too. Why? Well, the second half of the verse tells us, for the throne is established by righteousness. I think this means that godly, wise leaders realize God's favor and sustaining of their leadership position is generally protected by loving what God loves and hating what he hates. And, and we know that Jesus' bloody sacrifice on the cross shows us that the Lord hates sin. Next, letter C, they love honesty. Wise leaders maintain high ethical standards by loving honesty. Because decision-making is a key responsibility in leadership, one thing godly leaders need and rely on heavily is good counsel. Obviously, a leader can't make good decisions if he gets bad information. Thus, not only do godly leaders speak the truth in love, they also surround themselves with advisors that will do the same. Here's a fascinating story. The Roman emperor, Constantine, Constantius, excuse me, he's the father of Constantine. Constantius would test the character of his servants that profess to be Christians by commanding them to offer sacrifices to his pagan gods. Some caved under the pressure. But those who had sincerely believed the gospel would not sell out at any price. So Constantius would banish the ones who caved, but keep the ones who stood their ground. And of those who stood their ground, Constantius said this, quote, These are men I can trust. I value them more than all my treasures. I find it fascinating that even a pagan Roman emperor knew that believers who were faithful to the Lord would be most likely to be faithful to their king. So they love honesty. Godly leaders pursue wisdom because it's impossible to lead without it. So if you're in a leadership position or you desire to be in a leadership position, here's an application for you. Strive to be an example for others to follow. I tell my kids often, it's a privilege, not a burden, to be an example. Because examples make an impact on other people's lives. And the Lord's church needs more examples. Paul knew this when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul's saying, hey, I'm imitating Jesus. If you need somebody to look at in the flesh, well, then you can imitate me. But some choose to cast aside the privilege of being an example because they consider it too big of a burden. And I think they do this because they misunderstand how to do it. First, being an example doesn't require perfection, but rather just progress. 
And secondly, the Lord never intended for us to progress in our own strength. If we simply walk with the Lord, lean on his grace, and yield to his spirit, we can be far more than anything we could be on our own. So strive to be an example that others can follow. And the Lord will use you. Next, if you would turn to chapter 20, here's another verse on leadership. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 26. Oh, this is a fun one here. Proverbs 20, verse 26. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Here's number three in your outline. Wise leaders remove divisive people. They remove divisive people. Some translations render this separates or scatters uh, instead of winnows. The first time I heard this proverb, I've got to be honest with you, I was serving as an associate pastor at another church, and uh, it was during our Monday morning staff meeting, and the senior pastor quoted this proverb which I wasn't familiar with at the time, and um, he quoted it as we were talking about a man in our church that was stirring up conflict and trouble and running his mouth. He was just a, he was just a troublemaker, and I'm putting it nicely. And so uh, when I heard this verse read by our senior pastor, um, and then the second half of the verse, it says he drives the wheel over him. You can just imagine what went through my mind. Like, are we... Are we calling a mob head on this guy? What's he mean? Like, I got Godfather images going through my mind here, you know? Like, is that how we're going to do things as a church? I've never been in a church that does that before. This is going to be interesting. So, but, but after further review, I learned that winnowing is actually something farmers do at harvest time. It involved driving a cart with serrated wheels over grain so that it would cut the straw and separate the chaff. So, so it's a metaphor. Well, what's, what's the metaphor saying and what's it mean for leaders? Well, it means that wise leaders expel those that are caught in divisive, unrepentant sin for the sake of the church or the team or the company in Titus 3.10, Paul advised Titus to do the same thing, to protect the churches that he oversaw on the island of Crete by removing divisive people who would not stop gossiping, slandering, or stirring up conflict. It's interesting, even professional sports teams do this. I was reminded of a couple Hall of Fame NFL players that were recently inducted this weekend who had the reputation of being... Uh, a cancer in the locker room, or poisonous, or divisive. Uh, a couple of the players that were inducted this week in the NFL Hall of Fame were uh, often suspended or released from teams because of their behavior. Teams often will uh, use progressive discipline with a player. First, they'll find the player, say, for example, if he criticizes the quarterback in the media. Uh, and then if that doesn't work, they'll suspend the player. And if that doesn't work, they'll let him go and release him from the team and cut him. Now, if a football team is willing to take such measures to protect their unity in the locker room, 
How much more should the Lord's church take steps to protect its unity as well? So, um, again, for those that are in leadership, um, here's an application. Deal decisively with divisiveness. If you are a parent that observes one of your children saying one thing to you and then another thing to your spouse to divide you, you need to confront that, correct it, and discipline it immediately. And you know what I'm talking about. Even grandparents have it happen to them. Hey, can I do this? Uh, Grandma said it was okay. Oh, she did, really. And then you find out, oh, Grandma did not say it was okay. Or, hey, can I do this? Dad said it was okay. No, Dad did not say that. Or they go to one parent, get a no. They go to the other parent and get a yes. That's divisiveness. If you are a supervisor, manager, a business owner that catches wind of some damaging sin or, or divisiveness in the company, then you need to warn that employee. And if they don't change, you have to fire them. If you don't, it's only going to get worse. That's why there's the saying, one bad apple can spoil the bunch if you keep it around. Well, before there was that saying about the apple, there was Solomon who said, wise king winnows the wicked, and drives the wheel over them. Not in mafia style, though. Finally, if you would turn to chapter 28 and look at 28 verse 2 for our final uh, principle on leadership from the Proverbs. 28.2. Solomon writes, When a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. Here's number four in your outline. Wise leaders solve problems. They solve problems. Uh, When a land transgresses, that phrase in the ESV um, refers to any time there's a crisis, such as a rebellion or a a problem that is affecting the spiritual welfare of a group. And then next, he says, there will be many rulers. Now, this could mean that the country or the church, the organization will either go through several rulers. Another way to possibly interpret that phrase, it has many rulers, is that there may be several that try to fill the leadership vacuum that exists. If one exists. Next, he says, but... It's a contrasting proverb, but a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. Uh, This means that wise, godly leaders are able to assess problems, solve them, and restore stability. Much like you've seen in movies or in real life, when there's a crisis, when there's problems that are going on and there's no leadership, there's just chaos. Things are not good. There's there's disharmony. People are panicking, don't know what to do. There's conflict. There are numerous examples in the scriptures where this happened. Paul confronting the division in the church in Corinth, for example. He was very strong and very bold about it. To get the Corinthian church back on the same page again. Uh, There was the legalism in the Galatian church. 
Paul, again, very bold to correct that and get that church back on the right page with the correct gospel. And then there was the apostles appointing the first deacons in Acts 6 to address the neglect of widows. Had the elders and the apostles not acted, there would have been more grumbling and more grumbling and more grumbling about the neglect of widows in Acts chapter 6. So wise leaders solve problems. Here's your application. And this would, I think, apply to everybody. Be slow to criticize leaders, especially if you've never held their position before. You know, every four years, I get a chuckle when we have a presidential election cycle. Because every four years when there's a presidential election, candidates come out of the woodwork that have never been president to criticize the incumbent, and they make big promises because they believe they can do a better job than the current president. And both Democrats and Republicans do this. Now, I understand that to an extent, you have to have some confidence to believe you can do a good job in order to put your hat in the ring to be crucified in public and have your past dug up and all that. However, let's be honest, it's easy to play armchair quarterback when you're a candidate. See, because the president knows things that candidates don't know. CIA intelligence reports about the latest terrorist activities against our nation are not shared with the candidates. The challenges of dealing with Congress are not shared, or the candidate doesn't have that burden of trying to get Congress united to try and get a bill passed. The candidates don't have to deal with the constant demands on the schedule of nonstop, everybody wants your ear, everybody wants a piece of you, everybody wants you to get behind something. They just don't. So I've often wondered what former presidents say to the incoming presidents in private on Inauguration Day. Like, uh, just wait till tomorrow morning when you wake up and you get that intelligence briefing at 7 a.m. Man, there ain't nothing like starting your day off with all the people around the world that want to kill you. Sleep well tonight, you know? <laughs> or good luck trying to work with Congress <laughs> and get those guys together and get anything done. Here's a long list of problems I was not able to accomplish. I hope you can get some done, maybe, you know? I, 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 I remember thinking back in 2008 when um, President Bush was done, and of course he flew back to his ranch in Crawford, Texas, and Barack Obama was the new president. I often wondered what it would have been like to be President Bush sitting in Crawford, Texas, watching TV as Barack Obama took the reins. And I just often wondered if... President Bush would go, how do you like that, Obama? <laughs> Good luck. You know, like, it ain't as easy as you think, is it? Because you know, there's just things that you know. The field looks different when you're a quarterback on the field. It, it's, I see it when, with football, too. I see it with football when you have guys calling into talk shows, and they know everything, man, because they're up there watching the, the game on their big screen TV while they're throwing down potato chips with an adult beverage. And that all of a sudden makes them an expert on reading coverages. All the while, they've never actually been on the field 
trying to throw over six foot six, 300-pound offensive linemen while you have a 280-pound defensive end trying to kill you. They've never done it. Never done it. Where they have to throw a perfect strike to a receiver cutting across the middle, but throw it just right so the receiver doesn't get his head taken off by the free safety that's come across. Oh, and there's a corner blitzing off the left-hand side, and then the defensive end's coming from the right. Oh, and then, by the way, the linebacker's coming down the middle because your center couldn't block him in time. There's just things that you don't see and you don't know until you're in the position. This is why, when I became a senior pastor for the first time, I spent a lot of my first few months repenting and asking the Lord to forgive me. (laughs) Okay, Lord, I'm sorry I criticized that one guy I served under, because now I understand how hard it is to prepare a sermon week in and week out. Um, And then... I'm ashamed to admit this, uh, I even wrote an apology letter to one pastor that I served under because I was so convicted about how prideful I was and how critical of him I was, and I sent him an apology letter, and I'm sorry, I was wrong, I was prideful, will you please forgive me, because he was very gracious and uh, replied to me, but uh, I'm not saying that to to lift myself up, I'm saying I shouldn't have had to send the letter in the first place. I should have been humble enough to know his job is 10 times harder than my job as an associate. But here's a, here's a sad fact about sinners. Everybody thinks they can be a better leader until they have to slide into a leadership role and deal with what leaders deal with. We all do it. And so... I just want to caution you to be slow to criticize leaders. And even when you see stuff on the news, even if it's a leader who you don't agree with politically, think about what he's dealing with that you don't know about. Think about the burden and the responsibility and the pressure that he has. Wise leaders solve problems. And they're solving problems usually in almost every context, whether it be your boss at school or at the company or whether it be the governor or whether it be a representative in the state house. They're solving problems we don't even know they're solving. So, well, Proverbs on leadership. There's a lot more I could say, but I think we've covered enough. Would you join me? as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for Solomon's wisdom, for inspiring him by your Spirit to record these insights for us. Lord, I just ask that by your Spirit, you would help us to apply personally, to apply, Lord, uh, to our own lives, the truths that we learned today. Maybe there's a leader that we need to apologize to or show more grace to or to pray for. Lord, for those that are here today or listening online that are in a leadership position, would you use these truths to help them become more effective? And Father, I pray too for our church. Every church needs leaders and needs more of them. Lord, please, would you raise up more leaders within our church and call more leaders to our church so that we can do more for you. Leaders that are godly and wise because they they are mastering the scriptures and applying them to their leadership. 
role. And finally, Lord, thank you for Jesus who is the best leader that ever lived. He balanced grace and truth. He was wise and discerning. And he pioneered the greatest volunteer organization to ever exist on this earth called the church. Lord, would you help us to be more like him this week? In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.